All right, everybody. So we have Miguel Lacoute with us today. Welcome, Miguel. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, so we were talking a little bit before, and you are currently a master's at Columbia University, right, getting your master's program there. And then you also are doing research at the Yale School of Medicine, right? I am a student here of applied physiology at Columbia University, and I also do research at Yale, mainly in neuroscience and biobehavioral psychology. Very cool. And uh, quickly, before we, we get into all the science here, um, as with all of the podcasts, we make a donation to charity of choice of the guest. And so today you wanted my donation to go towards Safe Horizon, right? So can you just kind of briefly explain why that is and what the charity is? Absolutely. So it is an organization for domestic violence, domestic abuse. Uh, basically, what I was telling David here is that I, I'm, I'm very into charity. Um, so it'd be hard for me to, to specifically pick one. But the other day I was walking down the street and this woman uh, came up to me crying, very distraught, saying that she was staying at, uh, at a domestic violence um, refuge. And she basically had nothing, nothing on her. She had she really didn't have ways to, to survive or thrive or anything like that. And I felt terrible and I wanted to give her money, but I was on my way to the gym. I had nothing on me. And I was like, ma'am, like, I wish I could help you. Are you going to be here any other night? I will come back. And she says, and she said, no, she had to go back for her kid or something like that. Um, so I feel like me asking David to make this donation is my way of, of indirectly helping her and other women like that. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I've not heard of that um, charity before, but obviously a good cause. And I will look into it and put a link in the description below for anybody else who wants to make a donation. Uh, so thanks for making us aware of that. Thank you. So uh, you mentioned that you're doing a lot in academia, that you've done a lot already just in your first year as a master's student. So what are you doing? I mean, I think everybody listening to this probably knows you from the bodybuilding side. We've seen you do some work with Revive Stronger. Um, and actually, when I was reading into you a little bit, it looked like you had also done some stuff with Menno Henselman and Lane Orin, uh, I think some others that people would know. So uh, where did all this come from, this background? And what are you doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So I can start with I can start with the academia side of it because what I do in academia is a little bit different from what I do in fitness. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about fitness and let that just kind of organically evolve. So within academia, I graduated from McGill University with a bachelor's degree in nutritional biochemistry. Um, I wanted to, at, at the time, my, my big focus was how do we help elite athletes eat better, grow better, and stuff like that. That was the, the big focus there. Um, after McGill, I, I, I was looking into a master's degree. Um, I was looking into various uh, master's programs, and one that I applied to was, was Columbia University for Applied Physiology. The other programs that I applied to were mainly exercise science, but this program is just mainly uh, Applied Physiology as a whole, not just specifically exercise. When I got into Columbia, um, I got uh, I started talking to, to a big researcher here at Columbia who also does research at the Yale School of Medicine. The research is mainly in quantitative neuroscience and biobehavioral psychology. Um, we, it was one of those people who you just get along with and have amazing chemistry right away. Uh, so one thing led to another, and he brought me down to Yale to, to conduct this research in person. I was able to go to the Yale School of Medicine to do this research uh, in, the, in the Yale New Haven Hospital. And David, this was the, the most life-changing experience for me because at this point, I was so focused on sports science. Like, all I wanted to do was elite athletes. And then you get to, to a place like that, and you're exposed to research in musculoskeletal science and in neurology. So I saw people dying of ALS, paralyzed by MS, 
newborns yeah. dying because of spinal muscular atrophy, people losing all their function due to Parkinson's disease, um, people losing everything because of Alzheimer's, you know? And all of a sudden, like my purpose in life just became so clear because I spent all this time developing such a heavy understanding of the musculoskeletal system in neurology that I just became so over the fact that I needed to help humanity forward. Like I need to use what I have gained here to drive medical science forward. Uh, so my, my research at Yale was medical, of course, and now at Columbia, I'm going to be doing research at the, or, you know, start, starting on Friday, I'm going to be doing a really, really big project at the Motor Neuron Center, where we are going to be using regenerative medicine to focus on uh, diseases that modern medicine just has no answer for. The diseases that, that if you get, I, no one can help you. So ALS, MS, spinal muscular atrophy, Alzheimer's, all those diseases that right now, like at best, we can slow them down. But at the end of the day, no one can do anything for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think most people would probably agree that at the end of the day, that's a lot more important than uh, putting on another pound of muscle or, you know, improving your athletic performance 2%. As, as great as all those things are, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's not the most important thing in life. So that, that's really cool that you kind of switched gears like that. Absolutely. And I put up a, I put up a post on my story yesterday where I was showing like the contrast in between like sports science research and the research that I'm doing right now. Um, so in sports science research, like I, I, I put up something where like group two gained 5% less muscle mass or muscle cross-sectional area in the biceps in group one. And then I put up a medical research, a medical project that we're working here at Columbia. And it's in group two, 68% of infants died within 10 weeks in group one, only 30% died. And, and that's like, that's the reality of medical science. You know, it's like right. you're not dealing with muscle cross-sectional area. You're dealing with infants dying. Um, that being said, I still do work in sports science. It's still uh, kind of a, a hobby course of, my, of mine. and something that at the end of the day, I do have huge uh, passion for. So I'm working on a couple of research papers with uh, Dr. Andy Galpin and his team at CSU Fullerton. Um, and I'm also starting to design a study uh, with Dr. Eric Helms and another uh, in a postdoc fellow at UCLA where we're going to be looking at the psychopathology of muscle dysmorphia in, in male bodybuilders, trying to answer the question of what keeps people competing. Uh, I want to test both like the novel causes of everyone says, okay, I compete to beat, to beat my previous self. I compete because um, I just want to improve and do all these things. And then also looking at, all right, but what about muscle dysmorphia and eating disorders? What about social anxiety? And all these other uh, kind of mental illnesses, do, do those predict your desire to compete better than you just wanting to look better? Right. Yeah, no, that's very interesting because I think most people would probably agree that there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's eating disorders, there's body image disorders, a lot of that in this area. Um, and a lot of times that is masked by, you know, what's posted on Instagram and, and whatnot. Or, you know, it can be a healthy channel, too. But for a lot of people, I think it sends them down a, a bad path. And I think even a lot of people I've talked to, you know, myself even have had periods where maybe they didn't have the best relationship with lifting or food or, you know, like their body image. So um, I think that would be really interesting. No, absolutely. I'm very, very, very excited to see what we find. And um, Dr. Eric Helms is just a huge help in and being able to design a study like that. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Um, and I, I also, when I was looking into you a little bit, so I know you do some work with Revive Stronger. I actually just talked with Steve Hall, you know, within the last week. Um, and I think at one point you were a coach, and then now you're, you're doing a lot of more of the, um, 
education side of it. And I actually saw that you had had a YouTube channel until about a year ago. So was it just that you were kind of shifting focus in what you were doing or did it stop for other reasons? So basically, um, when when you're a so I'm, I'm Canadian, right? And, and in mm. the United States, uh, when you move here, you can't work. You can't provide services for 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 paid income. Mm. Uh, so the the area of like online coaching is, is a gray zone, and and you know no one is entirely sure of what you can or can't do. But I was just like, okay, well, I rather play it safe. So rather than taking on clients and, and keeping that up, um, we agreed that I would be more on the education side of it. And you know, just try to build my name and Revive Stronger's name as something that uh, that provides uh, education value to people. I'm still I'm still a part of Revive Stronger, but I just don't want to be taking on clients right now, just in case it causes any sort of uh, you know trouble with 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 my international student status. Sure. Okay. Got it. So uh, let's get in a little bit into the uh, your Instagram page. I like all of the schematics that you have up. You know, you do a very good job of pointing out a study. Um, I'm not sure if it's you designing the kind of like infographics there or somebody else, but you know, I think it helps a lot of people. It's, it's very good for the format of Instagram, right? People want to see a quick mm -hmm. picture of and what were the results. Um, and one I saw you post somewhat recently was on failure training. And it, it pretty much showed that training to failure was no more effective than not training to failure. So, you know, one question I had related to that is, is how trained were these subjects? Um, and then secondly, you know, kind of your thoughts mm -hmm. on the fact that a lot of advanced bodybuilders, certainly many are enhanced, but even non-enhanced uh, or natural bodybuilders use these methods to failure and beyond. You know, you've got DC training, you've got Max OT from back in the day, um, Fortitude training. I mean, there's a lot of these programs that really push failure and beyond. So why do you think there's a discrepancy between what we see in really big lifters and these studies? Okay, cool. That's a great question. Do you want me to go into the fitness background before answering and come back to that, or do you want me to answer this? Yeah, go into the fitness and then uh, you'll answer. Okay, cool. No, I, just, I just wanted for people to you know know that I also do fitness stuff. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. yeah. So basically, like my fitness background is that a couple of couple of years ago, um, you know, I opened up the YouTube channel. That was my primary uh, source of, of being able to put out information. Um, after I, I released a couple of videos, Alan Aragon I commented on one of them. Uh, saying like, hey, I, I love your channel. So I sent him a message, being super uh, just surprised that, that he would even look at my channel um, and ask him if there was anything I could do for him. He said, yeah, like, why don't you submit something for the ARR? I'll take a look. So, you know, I, I submitted an article for the Alan Aragon Research Review, which is highly prestigious to be published in as a, uh, someone in fitness. Um, he liked it, published it, uh, liked it so much that, that, that I did another one in the next month. So then after that, I kind of gained some confidence and uh, I messaged Dr. Lay Norton and started writing for him, producing content for him. Um, so that was amazing. And then after that, I did the same with Menno Henselmans. So I, I messaged Menno and, and, and asked if there was anything I could do for him. Um, and he actually brought me in as an intern to Bayesian Bodybuilding to help with the PT course. Um, went to the Netherlands and, and worked with, with him. And that was also an amazing experience because he's so knowledgeable. And then after that, just things started to snowball. Um, after I worked with Menno, I believe, I started working with Austin Current at Physique Development. Uh, I, was, I was a coach there and uh, the chief science officer. I worked with uh, Flexible Lighting Lifestyle, so Zachary Shalow. Uh, then I became a, a consultant for both Jeff Nippard and Stephanie Buttermore. So I helped them with, with their videos when they need it. Um, which is quite the, the fun gig to have. 
and then uh, I, I started working more and more with with both Lane and, and Holly. I also do the the scientific posts at uh, Renaissance Periodization, um, and and I also do stuff with Revive Stronger. So again, I I, I was a coach there. I was one I was one of the, the, the coaches. A lot of a lot, a lot of like moving parts there. A lot of cool people. But I, I work with a lot of people that you probably that you you and your audience probably uh, looks up to. Yeah, no, dude, that's awesome. I actually I didn't know it was that extensive. I, I knew most of that, but not not all of that. That's really cool. Um, and all that's probably started just not that long ago, right? You said a few years ago, really. I think I started I started working with Alan in 2016. Uh, so I think that I think that's when I started working with Alan and okay. Lane, and then I think I worked with with Menno in like April of 2017. Gotcha. Okay. Cool, man. So uh, yeah, yeah, very impressive resume there, and uh, so more reason to believe your answer to the following <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyways, uh, yeah, that that study was an interesting one. It it was done on on trained individuals. So it was a study by Carol et al. twenty nineteen, uh, done at uh, East Tennessee State University. So that is for people that don't know that that is a, a, a very very high performing lab when it comes to exercise muscle physiology it's under the direction of mike stone which is one of the legends of exercise science and and periodization um for example he's the one that trained dr mike isertel and james hoffman and much of the rp crew anyways what they did with this study is that they uh, took two groups of people and they gave one a program where everything like every rep uh, scheme was done to failure. So if they were doing five reps, it'd be a five RM or 12 RM or 10 RM, whatever the case is. The other group had percentages estimated. So they would do um, like 90% of what their five RM was estimated. Uh, all of this to be able to keep some repetitions in reserve. Now, interestingly, in both of these schemes, volume was matched over the entire 10 weeks. However, the group that left repetitions in reserve, so the group that didn't go to failure in each one, gain significantly more muscle than the one that went to failure. So uh, this is probably for a, a couple of reasons that they that they were able to maintain the same volume and still uh, and still gain more muscle mass. So if I tell you that one group is lifting to failure and the other one isn't, your first instinct would probably be like, okay, well the group that trained to failure probably did more volume because they were actually going into, into physical failure. But the way that failure works is that it causes significant amount of muscle damage. And muscle damage can impede future performance. So if on day one, you and I both, you go to failure and I don't, assuming we, we have the same level of strength and everything, on day one, you will be able to lift more volume than me. But then on day two, if we train that same muscle group or day three, you won't be recovered enough to keep up that performance, but I will. And over time, that effect keeps compounding and compounding. So one of the problems of training to failure is that, okay, acutely, you can lift more volume, but over time, it causes so much damage and fatigue that you won't be able to keep up, keep up that performance. And over time, you will actually end up lifting maybe even less volume or even the same volume as someone who, who doesn't train to failure. Um, and one of the reasons that, that, that it was hypothesized is that people who, who didn't train to failure actually gained more muscle despite doing the same amount of volume is because they didn't have that, that, that fatigue and that damage to kind of uh, impede the process of muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, I would actually argue even in an acute setting, I mean, there might be more volume in the non-failure group depending on the number of sets that are done. Absolutely. You know, if, if I were to do four sets, I could probably get significantly more volume in if I stayed two to three reps away from failure compared to if I went to failure on that first set. I mean, if I did a set of 12 to all-out failure, 
that next set's maybe eight, and then that next set's like maybe four. I mean, at least for me, I drop off pretty quickly. Whereas if I did ten, I could probably do ten, ten, nine, eight, something like that. You know, so even in, in a single workout, I could see higher volume from non-failure training. Absolutely, and that, and it, I like that you said a single workout because right there you're talking about one exercise. So let's say, for example, you are doing um, nine sets in one day. Let's say, for example, you're doing three sets of chest, uh, three sets of bench, three sets of incline, three sets of flies. If, if, if your push day, if you take your first few sets of bench press to, to absolute failure, you're not going to be inclining a whole, a whole lot. And then your flies are just going to be pathetic. Right, right. So then, of course, this always begs the, uh, you know, anecdote versus evidence um, kind of question is, you know, you take a guy like Scott Stevenson, who I don't know if you've had any interactions with him. Um, uh, I know who he is, but I've never interacted with him. Yeah, so I mean, very intelligent guy. Um, very, I mean, I've had a lot of people on this podcast. I've talked to a lot of you know PhDs in the field, and I mean, I, I would say Scott is up there in intellect. But as far as even just being well read with the studies, like he's very aware of the evidence. You know, there are certain people who've been doing this for a long time, and I would say that they know what they're doing, but they might not be able to necessarily cite all the studies. I would say Scott, in addition to doing this for thirty years, maybe even longer now, um, could. You just rattle off study after study. So, I, you know, I wonder if you look at something like his fortitude training, there's quite a bit of failure training in there. Um, and again, guys like John Meadows, Dante Trudell, a lot of these guys who are really big, but also enhanced. I mean, but there are examples who are not enhanced. Really strongly believe in going to failure at times. So I guess what would you tell somebody like that? You know, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, bro, <laughs> why is that the case? Why are all these big guys going to failure? Is it just the fact? Is it just that it works, even though they're not doing everything optimally, or do you think there is something that they're doing that really works best for them? I think that the the question of, hey, why is this person big even though they're training to failure, or why is this person big even though they're doing X thing that's probably not optimal, is one that we we can't we can't quite take a face value because we don't know what their genetic potential is. We don't know how big they could be if they hadn't taken to failure. What we, what we need to do really is just kind of look at these wide studies with, with different types of people and see, does the average person respond better when going to failure versus not going to failure? Because at the end of the day, yeah, Scott Stevens is cool, but I don't care about Scott Stevens in, in particular. Right? Right. I don't care about, about Trudell. Like I care about, what will the average person respond to? When I get a client, what what will they most likely respond to? And how do I train the majority of the, of the population better? And th the research that we have right now shows, okay, well, we probably shouldn't be taking them to failure. But what's really interesting about failure is that I, I see a lot of people get very pedantic about failure research. A lot of people say, hey, failure is the devil, never, never go to failure, blah, blah, blah. But go to a commercial gym. What are you going to see? You're going to see that most people train very far from failure. You're going to see people who are stopping reps just like randomly. Like you see someone like, and, and, and they just kind of stop when they get bored. So it, it's one of those things where it's a double-edged sword. Like sure, like if, if you're some elite athlete training like 10, 10 sessions per week, you know, having some double days in there, you probably shouldn't be going to failure. But if you're talking to some like geriatric person who really needs to put on some muscle, you can say, hey, you should probably train a little bit more to failure or a little bit closer to failure. So this is one of those things where I think that um, we kind of need to be a little bit more in the middle rather than get so pragmatic about like, hey, either we, we definitely need to train to failure or never, ever even come close to failure. 
Yeah, and I would I would definitely agree with you there. And I would also agree with you when you say, you know, you don't care about this individual. Of course, we can all find people doing erroneous things in the gym who are still huge due to genetics or steroids. You know, um, I do think it's interesting when a large majority of people do a certain thing that's in you know contrast to the evidence. Um, but more importantly, I would say that I would love to see studies. I think it's just hard to, because most of these studies, like you said, they're trained, but what is trained? Every once in a while, you do see a study with some highly trained individuals. It would be great if there was uh, a study done like that on like really competitive individuals. I mean, they're out there, um, but I don't, I don't know what the average training age of this particular study was. Do you? No, I can't remember off the top of my head, but that's a really good point. And also, like, a, a reason that uh, a lot of these studies aren't done with highly trained individuals is because highly trained individuals don't come into a lab and let, let people tell them what to do for 10 weeks. Right. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> intermediates make it quite impossible for, for you to tell them what to do. Highly trained individuals, like, they get in there and, and they, won't wanna, they, they, they really don't want to be told what to do. Um, mm-hmm. It also becomes very hard to detect changes in, in muscle cross-sectional area when right. someone is highly trained and you know, doesn't really respond to uh to training as much as a beginner would right yeah i mean and that's obviously a great point i mean when we're looking at the differences here obviously you know we have consistent lifting and consistent nutrition and then when you talk about the actual differences within the training routine you're really looking at minute differences a lot of the time especially over Mm -hmm. you know years and years of consistent training so if you have even an intermediate lifter who's going to put on three pounds of muscle in a year and you take you know a 12-week program it's like how do you measure a 10% difference there. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. So it's definitely a good point. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, most of the times when we need to consider what, what the average is, um, not just what one individual is doing, but uh, also, you know, if, if you're a coach out there, you also have to be listening to your clients because you will have some clients that like training a little bit closer to failure. Um, I've worked with people who like, if I tell them to do a four IR, they're like, no, Miguel, this is just boring. So I think that as, as, as right. a practitioner, you have to be able to take into account that, cool, this is what the research says. For the majority of people, we should probably be lifting somewhere between one to four reps shy of failure. But if your client just likes to stay within one, one rep shy of failure or they like to hit failure, we need to find a way to also fulfill that desire. So, for example, if you have a client that likes going to failure, maybe say, okay, well, we're not going to go on failure. We're not going to go to failure on squats because that's dangerous. And we really don't need to cause that amount of muscle damage fatigue. But, hey, how about we go to failure on this set of dumbbell lateral raises or bicep curls or tricep extensions? I think that we can find a way to merge these two. Maybe it won't be, it won't be the best that they're going to failure or doing like, like drop six or something, uh, drop six to failure on, on bicep curls. But at the end of the, the day, you need to find what your clients and what you yourself can adhere to and really, really enjoy. Right. Yeah. And I also like the point you made about just in general, like when you're looking at the population you work with. I mean, for one for people who are coaching, these studies are probably more relevant than studies that would be on somebody who's been training for 20 years. Because for the most part, we're not working with people who've been training for 20 years. Every once in a while, maybe. But for the most part, these are people in their beginner to intermediate stage who are looking for guidance. And so that's who a lot of like the studies are using. Um, but secondly, I think a lot of people really don't know how to train to what true failure is. Uh, and, and so the downside with all of this coming out about don't train to failure is people might really just not push themselves. Um, I, I think there's some utility in maybe learning how to push to failure, like what a true failure is, and then backing off a little bit. Um, because if, I mean, I'm sure as if you've experienced with people you've trained, 
if you have somebody you say stop three reps shy of failure if they're new to training i mean they might be stopping like seven reps shy of failure you know if it's a, if it's a particularly difficult exercise um so sometimes i will have people push to failure like really and if i can do it in person it's even better of course but mm -hmm. just to see what that's like and then from there back off uh, just because most people don't don't really know what it's like to push that hard mm -hmm. so there was actually a study where they did that um, basically, the, 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 it was people who lifted recreationally, and they were told to come in and pick uh, a weight that they believe would be their bench press 10RM. Um, so then they did the bench press 10RM. They're like, cool. All right. Next session, they came in, um, or, or they, they picked a weight where they thought. Next session came in, and they're like, okay, well, now we're going to do this to true failure. So basically what they had, and by the way, if, if you've never done a research study, when you go to failure in a research study, you basically have the entire research team screaming at you. It's basically like an mm -hmm. NFL combine. Um, so then they did that in order to see what these people could actually do. And the average person was able to to lift their 10 RM for 16 repetitions, which mm -hmm. just shows how far off people are from being able to pick to pick appropriate weights. And this is also seen by research by Dr. Zordos at Florida Atlantic University, where they basically showed that uh, advanced train, trainees were able to pick weights based on the on reps in reserve a lot better than people who were beginning. So yeah, I think that, it, that there is some utility in having people train to failure so that they can gauge what's far from failure. Awesome, yep. Um, there was one other schematic you had on there with form. I think that was actually just posted within the last couple of days. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if the chart that was posted was actually from the study or if that was just kind of to show the point, um, but basically the idea being that a lot of people will compromise form in order to lift more. Um, it's often an ego thing, but sometimes it's purported that, hey, by doing that, you're going to be able to increase the volume and therefore you're going to grow more by using bad form. Uh, the study that you had mentioned pretty much goes completely contradictory to that. So uh, what did they find there? Yeah, so in this study, basically what they did is they had people either train uh, at, at full repetition length or just do partial repetitions. And uh, what's interesting about research when, it, when, when, when people are doing partial repetitions or full repetitions, and what's kind of poorly done in the past is that the researchers, in order to be able to equate volume, do things the same. So it's like, okay, well, uh, we're both going to train squats. I'm going to do a half squat. You're going to do a full squat, but, the full, but both are going to use the same weight. And that's not real-world application because at the end of the day, what people are doing in the gym is they're sacrificing form and sacrificing, um, and sacrificing how far they're traveling in a rep to be able to use more weight. So what they did in the study is that they allowed the people who were doing partial repetitions to actually lift more load. And they did significantly more volume than the people who were doing full repetitions. However, the people who were doing full repetitions gained significantly more muscle than the ones that were doing partial repetitions, even though they did less volume. And this is mainly from uh, basically the fact that muscle fibers need to be recruited in order to in order to go through the process of mechanical tension, and that mechanical tension is then translated into a chemical signal called mechanotransduction, which is what is, eventually leads to growth. Muscle fibers that aren't recruited don't feel the tension and don't go through the adaptations that are needed in order for you to for you to grow them. So if you're just training at partial, at partial reps, if you are, you know, I, I think I said on the post, hip thrusting while doing your, your bicep curls and stuff like that, you aren't going to be maximally recruiting the muscle fibers that you want to be recruiting. And as a result, you're not going to be actually inducing the amount of tension uh, and, and leading to the subsequent hypertrophy of them because you aren't, you're, you aren't going to full recruitment. You are like, I don't know, doing the worm while standing up while doing your bicep curls or something.
Right. Right. Yeah, there was um, it was a different study, I believe. And I haven't been able to keep up as much with the studies the last like few weeks. But Lane Norton was talking about it on his YouTube channel. And they were showing uh, partial squats versus full range of motion mm. squats. And they had actually shown, they showed greater hypertrophy with, I think, hamstring glutes um, with the full squats. But they actually showed equal hypertrophy of the quads, I believe. And that was using the same weight. And, and like you said, if you were using, um, sorry, if you were doing a partial range of motion, you'd obviously be using more weight in most cases. Uh, so I would think you could extrapolate for that and think, well, if you had the same hypertrophy using the same weight, if you added the weight that you, you surely could add with the partial squats, you would have gotten more quad hypertrophy. So I, I wonder if maybe like, I don't remember what exercises they used in the study that you just talked about. Um, yeah. But, so if, uh, if we're talking about a really, really big compound movement, like the squat, there are a lot of moving pieces that are going to mm -hmm. contribute to uh, different parts of the movement at different times. So, for example, the quads is mainly a, a, a knee extensor. Um, so if, if we were to do something like a partial squat, it is theoretical that we could probably get similar hypertrophy um, between groups. Um, I don't think that that would happen over time. I think that if the study was carried out for, for a longer period of time, we would have seen different hypertrophy. I think that if we were to take a look at all the knee extensors, we would see uh, less hypertrophy. And I think that it makes sense that the, the hips uh, or the, the glutes gain less muscle because that's a hip extensor. Sure. And if you aren't going as deep down in the squat, uh, you're not taking your glutes through their full range of motion. But yeah, I, I do think that if, if, that if they had looked at, at more knee extensor muscles, we probably would have seen less hypertrophy. Um, but it, it theoretically makes sense why we could, we, we could see something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So kind of shifting gears here. Um, I did want to talk about CBD a little bit, not because it's really even that huge of an interest of mine. I mean, I think the topic's interesting, but it's a little out of my wheelhouse, but as you're very well aware on Instagram nowadays, it, it's just all over the place and, uh, people want to perpetuate it as this like amazing godsend, um, and I kind of want to get your scientific opinion on it of what we see, what are the actual benefits, what are some of the myths out there, and why do we see it like blowing up recently? Cool. It's a great topic. And um, I think that, that people on social media, they, they want to be the, the, the hipsters of new discoveries, right? They, they want to find the, the, the new thing. Like they want to be the first one to arrive to the CBD or the, the adaptogens or the collagen and, and all these things. Like people are just looking for something new so that they can look all fancy and smart when they really don't quite understand the scientific research behind these things. So CBD is something that, that I've written quite extensively about, and I can send you a, a, an article that I put together on Revive Stronger. But let's focus on, on the main things that CBD um, proponents claim CBD does. So we can talk about anxiety, we can talk about sleep and inflammation. Now, when it comes to CBD, just know that I am going to be talking about non-clinical populations. I just want to make that big, big disclaimer out there. The reason that I am making this disclaimer is because a lot of the people in the current fitness space, and a lot of people who sell CBD are selling these, the, the, these products to people who are in a non-disease state or have no mental issues and saying this is going to help you with X, Y, and Z. And using research where, 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 that, that, that has helped people in, in these clinical conditions. And we can't quite apply that. So I'm going to talk about that in a second. So, for example, in anxiety, it's a big thing here. CBD helps people with anxiety. CBD um, decreases anxiety and decreases stress and stuff like that. And there are some, like, if people have chronic uh, a trait anxiety, that, that means that you're pretty much an anxious person. 
at all points. There is some research to show that, that CBD might be able to help you. But if we are looking at, at uh, just acute anxiety, if we're looking at someone who has non-clinical uh, or non-pervasive anxiety, CBD has not been shown to help. So that, that's a place where I think it's really important to make a distinction where, all right, cool, if we're dealing with someone who has very, very, very severe anxiety, CBD might be able to help. But if we're talking about just the average person, just the average you and I, who maybe we get anxious about a deadline, maybe we get anxious about uh, a fight that we had with, with, our, with our girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, um, it, it, it doesn't seem to be very beneficial. In terms of sleep, there is a big study done by Linares et al. in 2018 where basically what they did is they took people and they gave them uh, various dosages of CBD uh, and various dosages of THC to see if, if, if any would have uh, an effect on sleep. And this study was done extremely well. They basically measured anything you would want to know. They measured uh, time to fall asleep. They measured uh, time in each stage of sleep, like time in bed. They used something called the Pittsburgh Sleep Questionnaire Index, which is the highest uh, psychometric tool that we have uh, for uh, for, for measuring sleep, um, and, and they just took all these things and, and assessed how are people sleeping in a placebo group in like 15, 30, 60 milligrams of CBD and in THC. Um, and basically they found that no outcome variable was affected by CBD. They actually found that the, when people were taking CBD, they had greater wakefulness um, throughout, throughout the night. They, they woke up more times and were more alert at the time of going to bed. They had greater sleep latency, so it took them longer to fall asleep, and they actually slept less throughout throughout the study. Um, the people who took THC, they didn't have, quite have anything affected. They just woke up a little bit groggier and, and, were, and performed mentally a little bit worse the next morning. But this just shows that people are talking about all these effects that CBD has on sleep. But if we're talking about people who, who don't have insomnia, we're talking about people like you and I, CBD, it might actually be harmful for, for sleep. And I'm not quite ready to say it is harmful because this is just one study, but the evidence doesn't look quite so great. Again, this was, this was a really well-controlled study. Um, and uh, just another point is, is that they, it was done with a crossover design, meaning that everyone went through all time points. So people served as their own control groups and people were, were tested across time. So we're not talking about, hey, how does one person, how does this average compare to this average? It's literally like, if I put you on all these things, how do you sleep better or worse? And CBD performed perform worse. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it is interesting to see, like you said, it's not just CBD. There are a lot of things that are, are hyped up. Um, but, I mean, I've had people recommend it to me. I, I've seen people who – I've seen people with significant backgrounds recommend it. And one of my friends is a, a pharmacist and is just, like, all about it. And I'm just like, have you looked into the research? Because, like, I haven't looked into it nearly as extensively as you have. But – I haven't seen anything particularly impressive where people are, are just kind of putting it out there as this panacea. Um, mm -hmm. I think people are always kind of on the look for, for that next big thing. Um, but I, I'm, I am still surprised at the degree to which it's being pushed recently. No, absolutely. And, and one study that is actually used to say, hey, CBD does help anxiety. It's a study where people were given uh, CBD on its own, and they were also given, oh, sorry, no, people were giving THC on its own. So THC is a main psychoactive component in marijuana, so it gets you high. Um, and they were also given uh, THC with CBD at various dosages. So they were given THC alone in, in inclining dosages, and then THC with CBD in inclining dosages. And they found that uh, when people were given the highest amount of THC, they got anxiety, right? And that is something that, that we do see in people who, smoke marijuana. Um, 
And when people had THC-induced anxiety and they took CBD, the anxiety decreased. But this is a huge deal. Like this isn't just me giving you CBD and your anxiety decreasing. Right. It's you getting it's you getting THC induced anxiety and CBD relieving <laughs> re, 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 right. that, and that is just right. like awful. Like that is, it, it, but this happens all the time. Like this, this this does happen. Like you will see a citation in a supplement, and it'll be like CBD reduced anxiety, and then you look at it and you're like, eh, it induced it it reduced anxiety in people who were who were so high they were anxious. There's right. actually a study that I, that I, that I was pointing out the other day uh, to someone where I believe it was, um, it was a glucose response. It was ber berberine, I, I believe, or um, it was berberine or green tea. It was, it was one of those. Um, but on a supplement, it said like uh, X, like X thing what showed to, to uh, cause people to drop 12 pounds in, in, in 15 weeks. This is awesome. Um, so then I, I look into the study and it turns out that this was a, a really well controlled uh, uh, weight loss study, but this is what happened. The, the, the group of people, they were, they were assigned to a, a group of medical doctors, a group of dietitians, and a group of personal trainers. They were put on, a, on an exercise program. They were put on a weight loss program. They were taught how to eat. Um, and then they were given like 15 different supplements. And this just happened to be one of them. So this, this company is like, this supplement caused people to lose weight. And it's like, no, they were yeah. taught how to, they, they had full support from medical doctors, from personal trainers, from dietitians. They had all their meals planned out and they took 15 different things. This one thing is not what caused it, but on a supplement label, you're, you're going to see this is what caused it. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's a whole thing, but it's, it's very frustrating. Um, I mean, already you have the fact that genetics are a huge component, right? And then there's performance enhancing drugs. But then on top of that, it's just like that a lot of people can't necessarily recognize what it is that's working. Um, and like, I don't want to like hate on her, but I, I have a friend who's lost 60 pounds now, right? And she's doing great. Like it's, yeah, it, it's awesome. Um, but she's telling me how it's because she's like got meal timing down and, and she eats more than she used to. And you got to read this book because it tells you all about like properly combining <laughs> foods. And it's like, God, like, and of course, like people listen to this podcast for the most part, they know that that's because she's just more aware of what she's eating. Right. She's more conscious of it. She's limiting certain food options. And so therefore she's she's in a calorie deficit, but she really believes it. And she is talking about taking on clients, how she wants to do that now because, oh, well, you've lost 60 pounds, so you can train other people, I guess. And it, it's, I don't know if it's ever really going to end, right? Because how do you convince somebody who, hey, I got the results, it worked, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely frustrating. And, and like you said, it's like, oh, well, I took this supplement. I took SlimFast. I took, you know, whatever. Even if, even if there was some effect, right, ephedrine, it's probably got some effect, but you didn't lose 20 pounds from it. You probably got more motivated because you were using it. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely frustrating as <laughs> somebody who, who tries to help people to hear that perpetuated. I guess really the only thing you can do is kind of what we're doing here is just try to educate people as much as possible. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm of the belief that I, I never bring anyone down. Like, if, if anyone here follows me, you know that I'm basically like the, the happiest go lucky, like most hippie dude there is out there. <laughs> um, I don't believe in bringing people down. I just believe in, in driving the field so far forward that those people just get left behind. And maybe, you know, it, 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 is, it isn't the best approach, like maybe like calling people out. Sure. Maybe it helps. But that's just like not what I want to do. I rather just like I rather put out so much good information that people realize that other people's information is bad. 
rather than me say, this person is terrible, this person has bad information. And at the end of the day, one thing that I have noticed, because I get this all the time, right? People are like, Miguel, you're the science guy. Like, why don't you call this person out? I genuinely believe that most people are good people. And most mm. people who are doing this, like your friend, I can guarantee you that in her mind, she is she's doing good. Like if she takes on a client right now and she puts them through the through this plan, in her mind, she's doing awesome. She is doing this person a favor and she's being she's being a great human being. Right. I haven't met anyone who sells something and is like, what I'm being a terrible person. Like I haven't met anyone who's like a purposeful villain yet. And <laughs> I yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are people out there, but I don't. Right. I, I I I genuinely think that most people want to be good people, so I don't believe in in just making that person feel like an idiot publicly. Yeah. No, I think it's a good policy. Um, I know Lane talks about that. He said he's like, it's unfortunate that my call out videos get the most views, but they do. Um, and I mean, it's just kind of how it is. Even even I've had a few videos where, um, like there was one on. Uh, like going bear mode that like Alex from Alpha Destiny, you know, he was talking about it and I didn't say anything really negative. I just kind of like chimed in, but just by like mentioning other people and maybe having a different opinion from those other people, you know, that was one of my most watched videos and it's just kind of how it is. But I still think yeah. there's, there's a tactful way to do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Very classy way to do it. Right. Right. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, um, we just try to put the good information out there. You're obviously doing a great job at it. Um, thank I you. think everybody so appreciates you. what, what you're doing. Well, thank you. Um, do you want to tell everybody where they can find more of your stuff? Cool. Um, actually, I think that, that, that we have one more point to go over. That's CBD sure. and, uh, and uh, inflammation. I oh, just okay, think yeah, that this, yeah, point, this point is, is important because a lot of the stuff, uh, or a lot of the time, sorry, people get uh, or buy, buy supplements because of, okay, well, this is anti-inflammatory. This is going to reduce inflammation. First of all, I think that three quarters of people don't know what inflammation is. Right. Um, and second of all, I'd say probably I think higher that, than that. <laughs> <laughs> I I literally think that people just like envision a a, a swelled tissue. Like I think that people <laughs> right. just like when people talk about like gut inflammation, I think they literally just kind of like think of a balloon in their stomach or something. Right, right. Um, bloating is not the same as inflammation, by the way. <laughs> I just read out there. But anyways, um, so inflammation, um, uh, CBD and inflammation. There is a very interesting molecule in the human body, and it's called interleukin-6. David, you're probably familiar with it. And it is, it, it's, it's interesting because of, it's, it's involved in, in like everything. Um, and it is both a pro-inflammatory and an anti-inflammatory in, in, in some cases. Um, so interleukin-6 is, is, is an inflammatory. We're going to talk about, about some, its inflammatory properties right now. Um, it is one of the biggest markers of inflammation that we have. And chronically, if interleukin-6 is, is high, or these markers of inflammation are high, it's not a good thing. It's actually bad for human health to have to have chronically to, to be in a, in a chronically inflamed state. But acutely and after a workout specifically, we do need inflammation. Uh, the inflammation helps to, to to drive some things into the muscle that, that causes growth. It helps to uh, to proliferate. Uh, it helps with satellite cell proliferation, and it does help with, with quite some. Uh, advantageous things to the point where if you take uh, a lot of non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories uh, right. or if you take a very high amount of antioxidants within the, uh, a close period of time to, to your workout, it can reduce uh, how much muscle you gain. And this is specifically because taking anti-inflammatories or taking antioxidants uh, reduces something called uh, cyclooxygenase, which has an effect on, on prostaglandins. So if you if 
uh, if readers are interested, there are quite a few studies where they show, okay, well, antioxidants reduce cyclogenase, um, and this ends up reducing uh, how much muscle you gain in response to a training session. Uh, CBD does that. It does it does re reduce cyclo cyclooxygenase, and it does recruit re reduce prostaglandins. So if we're talking about, hey, CBD is this amazing thing that, 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 that reduces inflammation, sure, maybe, but you probably don't want to be taking it post-workout, and we don't really know what it does for long-term inflammation. Again, we know that inflammation in response to an acute training, training session is probably a good thing because that actually drives hypertrophy, but we need to talk about, okay, well, what does this supplement, what does this product actually do to the inflammation over time? Because we don't need to re reduce acute inflammation. We need to reduce chronic inflammation. And also then you need to ask yourself, like, do you actually have chronic inflammation? Because a lot of people, they talk about how much inflammation they have. And here they are like a perfectly healthy 20-something-year-old uh, with right. a ton of muscle mass, completely healthy, have literally no reason to think they have inflammation. They're taking like all these anti-inflammatories. I'm like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> right yeah very true go get a crp test and see where you're at yeah but um but yeah no all, all great points and uh I, I think i don't know if you had already mentioned this i think in the post i did mention it but also one of the issues is i mean unless you're getting a, a prescription of something sort a lot of what you get in stores might not necessarily be or have what's on the label if it has what's on the label it might not have it in the right amount um, you know, there are certainly CBD products oh, yeah. that, that have THC in them, and most people are not actually looking for that. Uh, I mean, it's just that's one of the reasons that I don't recommend it, even if because a lot of times I'll just say, look, like if you want to try something not I mean, within reason, <laughs> I'll, I'll say give it a shot. Um, but it, it, with things that are unregulated, you really never know. I mean, honestly, even even um, things that are regulated, you know, there are medications. There was a, a huge Valsartan recall not that long ago um so it happens with you know things that are regulated but certainly with things that are not regulated by the fda um you you really have to be careful because you know they, they can have things that you don't want in them or they just might be missing the ingredients that you're looking for no absolutely and, and I, I did post about this it was a it was a 2017 study done by uh bon miller at all i believe that's right that's bon miller um where basically they they went ahead and they tested uh, a ton of different CBD products. So they tested CBD oils and vapors um, and vapes. I believe they tested a total of, of 80 products and they found that almost half of them, I believe it was 36 products, had 10% under had 10 under CBD with what the label claimed, which just sucks because you're getting ripped off. Hmm. I think like 20% of them had over what the label claimed. Uh, so meaning that 60% of them had inaccurate labels. And out of the 80 products that they tested, 18 of them actually had THC. So that should be a huge concern, especially if you are like uh, an elite athlete or someone who gets a stringent drug tests for your job. Uh, I would certainly not want to risk. Like if I knew that, um, I don't know, like Columbia or Yale were going to drug test me, I would not be taking CBD. Right. No. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Something to be aware of. So uh, all, all good stuff, man. Um, where can people go to find more of your work? Awesome. So people can go to my Instagram page. Uh, that's mblacute, M-B-L-A-C-U-T-T. Uh, I have a website, Miguel, uh, M-I-G-U-E-L, blacute.com. Uh, you can also find my articles and, uh, and coaching by my colleagues at revivestronger.com. Very cool, man. And we will have links to everything below. And, and thanks again for talking. 
Cool. Thank you very much for having me on, David. I really, really appreciated this. And thank you for being so generous with your charity giving. I was telling you that I think that is one of the most selfless things that I have seen in fitness. And I, I really do appreciate it. And all your listeners do as well. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate the comment.